The Tom Sumner Program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, John. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, that's a very good question. Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky day, Mr. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor-comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Uh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody, as we roll into Hour 2 of our three-hour tour known as the Tom Sumner Program. My guest this hour is uh, has been on the show many times uh, over the years, and uh, a few times recently as a uh, member of the panel for Armchair Politics. He is an author and currently working with a group called Convention of States. And we're going to talk about that with Wesley Whitaker, who joins me by phone. Good morning, Wes, and welcome. Good morning, Tom. Glad to be here. Thank you. Um, tell me about Convention of States, What essentially what it is for people who haven't heard about it yet. Well, Convention of States came into being on September 15th of 1787 as they were closing the Constitutional Convention and rereading through the document, making sure they crossed their T's and dotted all their I's. And Colonel George Mason, Virginia planner, raised in a, a question about amending the Constitution. Article 5 was the shortest article of the Constitution, and it said that Congress from time to time may amend the Constitution with a two-thirds vote or something like that, but that was it. He asked the question, what happens if in the future we have a Congress that is contrary to the will of the people? And we need to have... And, and what is the process like? What, what has to happen... Um, for this convention to take place? Well, they, they, they amended Article 5. They had a brief conversation, and they amended Article 5 to say that if two-thirds of the several state legislators pass an application resolution, which basically said the same thing in every state, that... Congress then must call for a convention of states to propose amendments to the Constitution. It's not a constitutional convention. It's a convention to propose amendments. And every state can send delegates to that convention. Once it's called, they can send as many as they want, but each state only gets one vote. Now, where is it in the process so far? How How is it set up and organized? Are there... Um, are there groups, are there chapters in every state? How, how is that working currently? There, there is activity in every state of the Union. Currently, 19 states have passed the resolution 
resolution has three basic points. Those are to um, limit the jurisdiction and power of the federal government, to impose fiscal restraints, and to impose term limits on federal appointees and members of Congress. Because they're never going to—they're never going to put term limits on themselves. Yeah, and and I agree with that. But I'm also a little bit concerned about the professionals that get left behind when term limits are imposed. And and I'm thinking specifically of lobbyists and and uh, other so-called experts that ply their trade on uh, the legislatures in Washington and the many states. You know, my grandfather had an interesting definition of the word expert. He said that <laughs> X is a has-been or an unknown and spurts a drip under pressure. <laughs> <laughs> but I think... But my think concern that's, that's is that... That's one of that, the reasons... You know, I understand even using that that definition is is um you know putting term limits on the people that we elect and then leaving behind the people we don't well it, the resolution calls for not just term limits on members of congress but also political appointees the way that you deal with the lobbyist influence in Washington, D.C., which I agree with you is just over the top. I think that's going to start coming into, uh, into, into, into being reduced considerably by this latest Supreme Court ruling against the EPA. Because what you have, what that addresses is what's called the administrative state. It's almost like another branch of government. All of these, you start off with 16 cabinet members under the president, and under each one of those cabinet secretaries, there are 14 or 15 different departments of this, department of that, and agencies for this, and agencies for that, and you end up with half a million people working for the federal government in one of those agencies. And they're unelected bureaucrats who write regulations have developed over the past 20 years or so of having the force of law behind them. And that's clear violation of the Constitution. The executive branch does not have legislative authority unless Congress gives them legislative authority for something specific. But that's gotten totally out of control. Um, the, there's a town outside of D.C. called Great Falls, Virginia that half of the people that live in that town are lobbyists and they all make a minimum of about 500 grand a year otherwise they wouldn't be living in great falls and uh it is an industry and it runs washington dc the congress people that we send there they don't write the legislation they don't write these five thousand page bills with you know a trillion dollar budget attached to it that's all put together by people who are not elected aren't accountable to anybody except the people paying your paychecks. And they're all designed to, to give somebody a special favor where the government's concerned. Somebody's making big money 
off of whatever legislation gets passed. And that's not what the framers intended. And I don't think that's what the voters intend. Not at all. You hear a lot of people saying, "What? why should I vote? What difference does it make? Nothing going to change. Um, What's the likelihood if, if a convention takes place and some of these changes are made that we're going to see participation in elections rise? I'm not sure I really understand the question. Well, I, what I'm trying to say is that there are an awful lot of people who don't vote. And they don't well, a lot think of people don't vote. When, when they, you talk to them, a lot of people don't vote because they don't think their vote matters. Exactly. And what I'm saying is if these changes occur, how is that going to change people's minds and, and get more people to participate in the, in the franchise? I think it's going to energize a lot of people because they're going to see that there is a way to change it we the people do have a way of, of affecting change on the federal level. And it starts with our state legislators. You know, That's a, the a closest lot. representation that we have is, as American people is, is the person we elect to go to the state house. There's a lot of people, Senate. Wes, including me, that, um, that believe that if, if people voted... If, if we had a much higher voter turnout, that we could outweigh the impact of money in politics. Um, but I we agree. don't. Because pe people get in there. You know, you ask somebody, and I've talked to a lot of people, that one of the biggest things that comes up is that why is it that we elect somebody to go to Washington, D.C.? And in two terms three terms max, they're usually a millionaire. They get paid a salary. They have to have an office in D.C., an office in their home district, and paid for staff and everything. But yet, after two or three terms, their net worth is a million dollars. And people go, how does that happen? It happens because the system has devolved. I won't say evolved because I think it's gone the opposite direction but it's devolved into a game of influence and um, money. Well, I, you know, I, I, I would want to explore a little bit the fact that, uh, you know, a lot of people serving in Congress, depending on what rank they have, um, are probably making, in a couple of terms, close to half a million dollars, and they don't ever pay for anything. <laughs> if you know what I mean. They manage to get, you know, most of their living expenses covered by campaign expenses in one yeah. way or another. So, you know, I, I, I don't think it's as curious or corrupt as it feels when somebody in Congress uh, racks up a million dollars. I think it's more corrupt than it feels personally. Because uh, you go there and you have all these good intentions, but when was the last time you sent somebody to Congress that actually did what they said they were going to do? Well, you you'd get one? a kick out of this. I had uh, I had two candidates that were new candidates running for open seats in the state House of Representatives. One was a Republican, one was a Democrat. 
had them both on the show at the same time. They weren't running against each other for the same seat, I don't think. But, um, but I asked them about their feelings about term limits and um, a part-time legislature and, and a number of things. And, and they, they were all behind all of these reforms going in. Six months later, same two guys have them on the show, and now they've got a whole list of reasons and talking points why none of those things will work. Well, you never know if they're going to work or not until you apply them. But I'm just saying that that they get drawn into that bubble so fast. Yeah. You know, they start out ahead of time going in saying, oh, I'm going to reform everything. I'm going to turn everything upside down. Then they get in and say, well, you can't really do that because of this and this and this. And and I just thought it was it, remarkable that there was that big a turnaround in that short a time. I think, I think a lot of the American people are very naive as to what actually goes on in Washington, D.C., Oh, I think so, too. That's that's where that saying comes from. There's two things you don't want to see how people make them, and it's laws and sausages. Yeah. And this guy served for like six terms and then quit, and I asked him, I said, why, why are you leaving now? He says, I'm tired of being part of the three percenters. And that was the percentage of Congress people in Senate and House that were not either corrupt, co-opted, or compromised in some way. He said, these lobbyists, they'll wine and dine you, they'll take you out, and, you know, you think they're your friends and they're going to help you. But here's an interesting thing that, that has made me a little bit nervous about term limits is I was talking to um, uh, a member of the state house, and we were talking about lobbyists and term limits and all that kind of stuff, and he said, oh, you can't get rid of the lobbyists, he said, if it wasn't for the lobbyists, a lot of us wouldn't know anything. Which is a really scary thought when you think about it. What's scarier is that they only know what the lobbyist tells them. Well, that's where they're getting their information. And, and, and one of the things I took away from it is they're not there long enough to, to gather enough information to... Um, not rely on lobbyists. Anyway, I just found that I found that a real troubling comment. Hey, Wes, I got to take a short break here, um, but um, I want to talk some more, and I want to get into, you know, what people can do to get involved with this process. Um, if you can stick around and, and uh, wait out the break, and, and we can talk some more. Sure. All right. Thank you. My guest is Wesley Whitaker. He uh, works with Convention of States, and uh, we're going to talk more after we let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. They are WFOVLP. 
Our Voices Radio 92.1 FM in Flint. If you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well. So don't touch that dial. Don't click that mouse. We'll be right back. Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. you ever feel like you need an attitude adjustment? Are you wishing there was a magic pill or a new app for your mobile device? Why don't you try live local music? Music can make you dance, bring back fond memories, inspire you to be more creative, whether you attend a child's school concert or recital, go to a local symphony concert, visit local bars and restaurants that feature dance music, sing-along piano, or jazz and blues. Music could be just what you're looking for. Supporting live local music is more than a way to support your local artists and economy. It's a great way to improve your own quality of life. Support live local music. This message is brought to you from the Tom general stuff listen I have a legal question what is it mom I just got a call from the water company apparently your father has not been paying the bill I guess they're going to turn the water off because we owe more than a thousand dollars now can you believe it actually I can't so listen we just have to send them $200 in Edible Arrangements gift cards, and that will keep the water on. Now, here's the legal question. What is the website for Edible Arrangements? Mom, it's an imposter scam. Imposter scam? Is that .com or .edu? No, the call was a scam. Scammers will pretend to be a government agency or a utility company or someone else you might do business with. A big red flag is if they tell you that you can pay them using gift cards. So when in doubt, ask for the information to be sent to you in writing. And never give a caller or someone you don't know your personal information or your money. If you do suspect an imposter scam, report it to my office at mi.gov slash agcomplaints. Okay, all right. And Dina, 
Where do I file a complaint that my daughter hasn't visited in over a month? Does your office have a website for that? Okay, Mom, I'm hanging up now. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show. Hey, welcome back, uh, everybody. We're talking with Wes Whitaker from Convention of States. Um, Wes, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around, and as always, sorry to make you sit through all that. It's all right. I enjoy it. <laughs> um, Wes, what in this process, is there a role for the average voter or citizen to play in in getting this done or is this something that's just completely handled by um legislators well it's absolutely the role of of the average person that's the whole purpose of this is to get government back down to the people one of the primary things that the average person can do is sign the petition that we have. <clears throat> you can do that online if you go to conventionofstates.com. And you go to that website, you can download the pocket guide, which explains what the whole process is, but you can also electronically sign our petition, which will generate a letter to your legislator saying that you want them to support Convention of States. Um, like in our area here, I've talked to both David Martin and Mike Mueller, and they both have said, you know, they're all on board with this. Because what it does is it puts the states back on an even playing field with the federal government. It restores the checks and balances that we had originally in the Convention or in the Constitution. What's the what's the timeline for this? Um, it, it, it's a pretty cumbersome process to get a majority of states to sign off on this. Well, we need two-thirds to get it to go to convention. And two-thirds of the several states have passed the resolution and Congress must call for the convention of states. That's in Article 5 of the Constitution. They don't have a choice. It's a resolution because a resolution by a state legislature cannot be vetoed by the governor. So it's really designed in such a way that the powers that be that hold sway over all of us can't really stop it once, once it gets going. Once we get 34 states, the convention is called. The states send their delegates to it. Every state gets one vote on any proposed amendments. The amendments that come out of the convention then have to go back to the state legislatures. And three-fourths three of the state legislators have to pass the proposed amendments. So it's, you know people talk about, well, it's going to be a one-way convention and stuff. And that just simply can't happen the way it's constructed. That's a very high bar to get, first of all, two-thirds to even call the convention. 
and then any amendments that come out of the convention have to be ratified by three-quarters of the state legislatures. And once they're ratified, then they become an amendment. And so it, it's a very high bar, and it doesn't really have a time frame on it. It's just when it gets done, it gets done. But it gives. But it aren't gives there the timelines uh, for um, the returning of petitions, or is that only the case uh, for candidates running for elected office? Yeah, the, the, these petitions don't have that kind of restriction on them. And how lo how long has the Convention of States been working on this? When did um, petitions first start getting signed? Oh, let me think here. I think this has been going on now for like three years, four years. I don't have that date in front of me. Yeah, and I'm not trying to put you on the spot, Wes, but I I wondered, you know, if it was something that had been going on for years or for months. Um, has it been slowed down by the pandemic at all? Not really. I mean, that's when I got involved with it was uh, during the pandemic, on the back side of it, of course, but during it. It is something that is designed in such a way that it can go viral, just people talking to each other. Like I've talked to all my family members. I've got them to sign the petitions wherever they live. Um, all my friends. It's really designed in such a way that it's it's going to be a groundswell of the, the people behind it that, that causes this thing to happen. Where are we in Michigan? Is, is Michigan, um, first of all, when Michigan joins on, how many states are, are already locked in? 19 are already, have already passed the resolution. And the goal is how many? 30? 34. 34. 34. Um, so how far away is Nixon, or Michigan from, sorry, I was looking at some notes here. I don't know. Nixon's a long way from us. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's way old news. Um, <laughs> we, have, we have right now, we have, uh, I think the last count was 27 state representatives on board. And the majority of the uh, Republicans in the Senate. And uh, and what's it. the goal there to get majorities in in both houses? Do you need a a governor to sign off? The the goal is to get the House to pass House Joint Resolution E. It's in committee, and once we get enough people who have signed petitions to cause Lansing to realize that, hey, this is what the people want, and there's a growing number of them calling for it, and they'll vote it out of committee and pass it in the House. When they pass it in the House, the Senate's already ready to pass it, and it then Michigan becomes one of the states that's passed the resolution. Does it need sign-off by the governor? Absolutely not, no. Because it's, it's a resolution. Because it's a resolution and, and not an act of law. Right. Um, and it's kind of an ingenious way that the, the framers put this in there. It's, uh, we've grown up believing that Congress is the only one that can make amendments, but it turns out that that's not true. 
Well, and we have an interesting thing in, in Michigan where voters can get a petition passed to put something on the ballot, but then the legislature has been reserved the right to pass it itself in any form it deems necessary to prevent it from getting on the ballot, which is kind of an interesting thing. I don't know if other states do that. Yeah. How long do you think before before you see uh, before you can reach the goal in the Michigan legislature on this? I think this will pass. I think this will pass in Michigan this year. Really? We we tried to get it before this legislative session ended, but that just didn't happen. That's not going to happen. They're out of they're out right now, so it didn't happen. Uh, but I, I believe that we've got some momentum built. Everyone knows who we are. I go down to Lansing and talk to people. I'm even talking to Demo- Democrat legislators because it affects them too. This is not. This is a nonpartisan effort. And what it does, you know, I sit sit down with them. I said, look, this this puts you guys back on an even playing field with the feds. There's no reason, politically or otherwise, why you would not support this effort. Because it, it puts you back on an even playing field. It, it's designed to reinstate the checks and balances that the framers put into the Constitution originally. And we need to really draw down the federal government. There's not one aspect of your life, Tom, that you can name that the federal government doesn't have some some sort of interest in. And that's not the way that this, gov- this country was established. It was of the people, by the people, and for the people, not of D.C., by D.C., and for D.C. Once the, um, once the process of getting the convention... Um, approved and set once once the convention is set to take place how much how how specific is the work of that convention and and the uh, the delegates to that convention are they are they tweaking some things are they knocking some things down putting new things in what what will the work of that convention be that's a great question because it addresses some of the concerns that I run into that people who have heard of Convention of States, but they're afraid that it's going to cause a runaway convention or it's going to destroy the Constitution or take away the Second Amendment. Or There's all kinds of things that pop up. Once the convention is called, the states send delegates to the convention, and the delegates are selected by the legislature. They're charged the same way that electors to the Electoral College are charged. And they have to consider amendments that are within the framework of the resolution. And, and the framework is three, three simple items. Proposed term limits, imposed fiscal restraints, and reduce the size and power and, of the federal government. 
they can't go off and say, oh, well, I want to, you know, I want to put an amendment in that makes uh, casinos the prime funding mechanism in every state. That's not, that's not part of the deal. So there's not going to be any of those things that people have heard that are, you know, there's a, there's a lot of people out there that are bashing convention of states. And you know me, uh, when I hear something, I I start researching it and I try to find out, okay, where's that coming from? Sure. Who's saying that? Why are they saying that? And I'm like a dog with a bone. And uh, I have found that when you trace a lot of these scare campaigns back to the source, you come to people that have a vested interest in the current corrupt political system. They have power and they're making money and they don't want that to change. And the, I hate to say it, but a lot of the people that go to Washington, D.C., they like the system the way it is. They don't want it to change. And they really don't care what we the people think about that. What I find that's frustrating to me, Wes, is that that people don't want to dig that deep. If it requires yeah. they have to do, you know, some research or some due diligence, they just ignore it. Well, that, that, to me, is an indictment of our education system. Yeah. I, I, I went to Bindle School in, in what we probably call Bertucky, you know, Bristol Road, South Saginaw Street. Sure. Was, my graduating class was like 98 people. It's not a big school. And I grew up hearing all these things about how, oh, you went to Bindle, oh, you went to Bindle. But when I look back on it, I came out of Bendel with an incredibly strong education. We had some very, very good teachers. And I went into the Air Force right after high school, and I would talk to people about government and you know, the way the process works. And I said, well, where did you learn this? Well, I learned it in civics class. Janet Vest was my civics teacher. She made sure we understood the process of how government works, not just at the state, but the federal level. And we would talk about books and certain authors. Well, that was Dr. Cronin. And they had Dr. Cronin. Yeah, we had an English teacher that was a doctor. And my love of writing, that got stimulated by Virginia Anderson. We had teachers who cared about the students and what they were learning and why they were learning it. And I run into my classmates, and the majority of men I've run into have, have had very successful careers in whatever field they went into because they had a good educational foundation. Well, and I think, mm -hmm. um, you know, as long as we're indicting uh, schools, I, I, think, um, I think parents were different in those days too in terms of sending kids to school that were um, expected by their parents to listen to learn to obey yeah <laughs> and they gave permission to get your butt swatted if you didn't <laughs> <laughs> oh don't i know it wes yeah, um, me too <laughs> i bet uh, <laughs> I bet you've seen the wrong end of the paddle more than a more oh. than a time or two. Um, Mr. Detterman in, in 
in junior high school. <laughs> junior high school, and he had a I forget the name we had. We had a name for his paddle because it it made a swoop sound before it smacked you. <laughs> you knew it was coming. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. But that being uh, that being the case, how much would the convention of states resemble the Continental Congresses, the first and second? Would it be a third Continental Congress, or is it something very different than that? Well, it's, it's something very different. It's we're not coming up with a new constitution. We're not coming up with new articles of confederation, and that's been a lot of the confusion that we've had to fight through and correct. It's it's a process that the founders put in there to really protect the people. And George Mason even said it himself. Uh, there's a, there's a book that I encourage the listeners to kind of look up if they want to check me on this. It's The Notes of Debates in the Federal Convention of 1787, reported by James Madison. And he kept, he was like the recording secretary of the Constitutional Convention, and he kept notes. And he talks in there about, you know, amendments of the proper kind would ever be obtained by the people if the government should become oppressive as he, George Mason, believed that would be the case in the future. They, they were very familiar with what tyranny looked like. They had come out of a revolutionary war against tyranny, so they didn't want to have any opportunity for tyranny to raise its ugly head again because they had lived under it. So when they the first draft of the Constitution, when Article 5 said that Congress shall amend, George Mason said, well, what happens if we have a Congress that's contrary to the will of the people? And the people have to live under an elected tyranny. They have to take whatever Congress says. And they wanted, they worked very hard and diligently to try to come up with a framework for government that had checks and balances between the federal government, the state government, but was always there for the purpose of serving the will of the people. And when you, when you sit and talk to people about that, they kind of look at you kind of funny because, like, you know, what do you mean the will of the people? We elect these people, they go to D.C. or they go to Lansing and they make the laws, and that's how we live. Well, no, it's more than just you vote for them. They're supposed to do what you tell them to do. You're paying them. They're supposed to be working for you, not the other way around. Wes, um, the states will appoint people as delegates um, to go to this convention. How does that process work? What's the likelihood that that's just going to be people from the general public, or is it going to be already elected officials that have been designated to go participate in that? It's different for every state, and I get asked that a lot, and I really... Is there a recommendation um, for how to go about that by the uh, the group that's that's facilitating this process? I've made recommendations to the people I've talked to. 
<laughs> any any that we can say on the radio west <laughs> well like for instance I, I think that it should be somebody who is uh for instance a constitutionally grounded attorney would be a good person to send uh, think of a guy like david coleman the guy who defended the barber in owasso right um I've known David for a long time, and, and he he knows the Constitution. He understands what the words mean, not just you know what the what the Constitution says, but he understands what the words mean and why they were put in the Constitution. I would be very comfortable with having somebody like him be a delegate to this convention. Um, I think it, I would hope. And once it passes, the legislatures will send delegates who are serious and um, level-headed, objective, and have the interest of the people that, at heart. And they're going to go there to, to do what needs to be done. Because we need to get this nation back to where where it was supposed to be, not where it is now, because it's it's broken. Where can people go to um, find out more about the the process, where we are in the process, and um, where they might be able to sign a petition? Convention of States, all one word, C-O-N-V-E-N-T-I-O-N-O-F-S-T-A-T-E-S. Dot com. Go to conventionofstates.com. You can sign the petition right there. It will generate a letter to your legislator saying that, you know, one of your people have signed this petition and they want you to vote for this. It also allows you to download the uh, Article 5 Pocket Guide. You can get an electronic copy of that there. There's all kinds of resources available to people. They click on the resource button. There's a model convention of the state's application. Frequently asked questions. There's answers to objections. Well, Wes, we've got about a minute and a half left, and I want to thank you for spending this time. Well, I want to thank you for all of the trips you make to the show, whether it's by phone or some of our past experiences in person. Um, but anything else you want to plug quickly before we uh, go to break? Well, I just want to thank you. I think you're an important part of this community, and you're, uh, you and I have had a lot of discussions in the past, and you come from the other side of the spectrum from me, but you respect my my input as I respect yours, and I think you play a very important role in this in this community. Well, my my belief, you. Wes, is how are you ever going to learn anything if you don't listen to anything besides what you already think? Um, Absolutely, Wes. The um, I, I I meant by opening that up. Uh, the, just to ask if you had any any writing projects or if you have a website of your own that you'd like to steer people to to check out some of your other work. My website right now is down, and I'm working on that. Um, I'm kind of embarrassed to say, but it is. 
Well, don't be embarrassed, uh, Wes. I, I hear that a lot from people. <laughs> well, <laughs> You'd be surprised how many people say, oh, it's, you know, it's, it's under construction. <laughs> I, I went from doing nothing last year to all of a sudden I'm drinking from a fire hose. I've got one book that I'm working on. I've got two more lined up behind it. And uh, my editor wants me to write a novel. I mean, it's just like going from famine to over, overload. <laughs> so I'm having I'm having to make some some changes professionally to. Well, Wes, we got to end it there. Hello but there, thanks citizen. so much. Darkwing Duck here. Thank you, Tom. And Take every it. time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Imagine a journey down a picturesque river. Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources. The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call The X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. Cloth or disposable? Paint or wallpaper? Yellow or green? Babies come with lots of decisions. Crib or bassinet? Rocker or glider? So when it comes to protection against diseases, go with the safest, most effective choice. Vaccination. To protect your child against 14 serious childhood diseases like measles, meningitis, and whooping cough. That's why nearly all parents choose it. Stroller or carriage, basketball or soccer. So get all the recommended vaccinations for your baby by age two. For more reasons to vaccinate, talk to your child's doctor. Go to cdc.gov vaccines or call 800-CDC-INFO. Justin or Justine. Immunizations help give you the power to protect your baby. A message from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Why are we stopping? We're going to be late for the show. Mom, Dad, we got to get gas. Not here, you're not. This place is charging an arm and a leg. 
Look, these days price swings of 30 or 40 cents per gallon aren't unusual, but when a gas station charges a price way above the price at similar stations, that could be gas gouging. Michigan gas stations sell the correct quality and quantity of gas most of the time, but when a station does try to illegally take advantage of drivers, my office is here to stop them. Stop Attorney Generaling! We got a concert to get to! I hope she doesn't sit next to us. Narc. This is Attorney General Dana Nussel. If you have information about potential gas gouging, call my office or go online at michigan.gov slash ag. Put those away. We're at a gas station. This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. And now for something completely different. This is Mark Beardsley in Middle America. In light of all the messy politics that seems to dominate the news these days, I was asked early this year whether or not I thought it was time for a third Continental Congress in these United States. I waffled because I didn't know. I had to think about it for a while. Well, after a lot of thinking, I've come to this conclusion. Yes! It is time for a third Continental Congress. First, a little history, though. The first Continental Congress met in 1774 and basically just agreed to send a list of grievances to the King of England. When that didn't work out so well, the second Continental Congress was formed and it issued the Declaration of Independence. Plus, it oversaw the Revolutionary War and, after we won that, concluded in 1781 by passing the Articles of Confederation, largely seen as a loose precursor to our Constitution. In 1787, our Founding Fathers gathered in Philadelphia to form a new, more unified federal government. The Constitution was born, and it took delegates two years to ratify it. In saying that I support a third Continental Congress, I say it is time for Americans to come together to build upon what the Founders created, to throw aside what is no longer practical, to improve upon what does work, and to clarify, in modern language, those elements of constitutional principle that our leaders just cannot seem to stop arguing about and which hamper our Republic's ability to move forward. Here are just a few examples of what I mean. A two-party system is not in the Constitution. Today's two major political parties have, have entrenched themselves in power in a manner which tends to exclude other parties. A revamped Constitution could, as one possibility, specify that any party that receives a minimum percentage of votes during the biennial congressional elections must receive proportional representation. This would go a long way toward helping more Americans feel involved and included and welcome in our political process. 
The notion of judicial review is also not in the Constitution. All the document says on this is that the Supreme Court decisions shall be the supreme law of the land. It was Supreme Court justices, particularly Chief Justice John Marshall back in the early 19th century, who expanded the powers of the Supreme Court to include judicial review, which is the power to determine whether laws are constitutional or not. With charges of judicial activism running rampant on all sides these days, this is another area where a revamped constitution could help by clarifying precisely what we really want the powers of the federal judiciary to be. Another good example is the furor over the Second Amendment. If there is one part of the Constitution that requires clarification, it is this ambiguous statement about well-regulated militias and the rights of state citizens to keep and bear arms. This is particularly important in a modern age with plastic guns and armor-piercing bullets that the Founding Fathers certainly could never have imagined. Similarly, the Electoral College, which was a good idea for a time when it took days, if not weeks, for news to get from one end of the Union to the other, is outdated. In this age of instantaneous communication, do we really need this archaic system anymore? Shouldn't the popular vote determine who becomes president? The Senate filibuster, which has come to require an absurd supermajority of a three-fifths majority for anything to pass, is likewise nowhere in the Constitution. It is a Senate rule, and it can be changed by the Senate, but that body seems to be politically unwilling to do so. A revamped Constitution could eliminate or delineate the nature of the Senate filibuster. The Internal Revenue Service is nowhere in the Constitution. The constitutionality of the income tax was in fact challenged up until the 16th Amendment in 1913 clarified it. Many Americans think, a hundred years later, that this needs to be revisited. The same is true of the Federal Reserve, and considering the extent to which that board failed to foresee and appropriately safeguard our economy against the recent economic meltdown, its role too needs to be revisited, I think, and more clearly defined by a third Continental Congress. These specific items would only be a start. The process could take years to conclude, but it's a sensible idea. The Constitution was devised to be a living document, not a straitjacket. Let's exercise that flexibility. The constitutional amendment process is too narrow for a grand sweep of political reform.
mind out in a car He didn't notice that the lights had changed A crowd of people stood aside They seen his face before Nobody was really sure if he was from the house of I would lay, grab my coat, grab my hat, lay the books and seconds flat. By my way of stairs and I had a smoke, somebody spoke and I went into a dream. Sumner 
TomSumnerProgram.com The Tom Sumner Program.com The Tom Sumner Program.com From the Tom Sumner Alexander Zanjic, don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner.